We're going to go back to Colossians as we've been working through this. Uh, There should be a printed outline in the bulletin. There are printed sermons at both exits. If you didn't get one and want to get up and grab one, feel free. Uh, Those are also on the church website, and um, there's a password to the website, to the Wi-Fi on the front of the bulletin. And uh, all the last 23 years' worth of messages are on the church website as well, both printed and um, audio uh, messages on there. We're working through Colossians. We come to chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, where Paul writes, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. I'll always remember March, I mean March, January 5th of 1974. I give my wife a card every year on that day because that is the day that I was invited to a dinner party to meet a young lady by the name of Marla. And uh, my friends had been telling me that she was my type. But, you know, when you're single, you hear that all the time. And I'd been disappointed so many times. I'll be honest, I wasn't very hopeful about the meeting. I was also kind of lied to because I was told it would be a group party. So I thought, you know, one of many. I got there, and there were two other couples, and then me and Marla. And so I met Marla, but as I met her, I something inside of me just kind of went, you know, I think she might be my type. And uh, so we began to talk. And I was really lonely at the time. My roommate had moved out, so I was living alone down by the beach. And uh, I didn't want to wait a whole week to go out with her. I knew I'd go crazy that week, so... I said to her, "Uh, would you like to go out sometime? And she said, yeah, sure. And I said, how about tomorrow night? (laughs) So I moved in for the kill quickly. And uh, we we spent that night. And then the next uh, week, almost every day of that week, we were together. And by the time three weeks were up, we were talking about being married. And so I uh, screwed up my courage to go talk to her father. Now, if you've never done this, guys, uh, carry a water bottle. Your tongue gets dry. It feels about three inches thick, and you're trying to get the words out to say, I I would like permission to marry your daughter. So I finally got it out, and her dad took a drag on his cigarette, blew out the smoke, You know, as I'm sitting there waiting for the answer, he looked at me, he looked at Marla, he shrugged his shoulders, and he said, it's your life. (laughs) Well, I took that as his blessing, and so we went ahead with plans. We got married on March 23rd, 1974, less than three months after we had met. Later, when we had kids, I kind of worried that maybe they would do the same thing, and so I was afraid of that, but thankfully, none of them ever followed my example. You know, we all like to hear stories about how <clears throat> how people fell in love, 
But honestly, falling in love is kind of easy. The trick is staying in love over the long haul, over the years. And uh, how, how do you sustain it? How does it grow stronger and uh, deeper over a lifetime? I have done many, many weddings in 38 years of ministry, and I've never married a couple who were not deeply head over heels in love when I married them. Sadly, I've done a lot of marriage counseling with couples, sometimes the ones I've married years later. And you look at them and you wonder how anybody could be so angry, so bitter as they are toward each other that once was in love. You just can't quite put that together. They started out in love, but they didn't sustain and deepen that love. Becoming a Christian is a lot like falling in love in that it's easy. You know, it's just kind of like falling off a log. I mean, you meet the Lord, and it's wonderful. And you trust in the Lord, and all of your sins are forgiven, as we sang. My guilt is gone. I'm, I'm no longer under condemnation. I have the peace of God in my heart. I have his joy. He's given me the hope of eternal life. Uh, you're a brand new creation in Christ. I mean, what is there not to be excited about? It's like that guy in the book of Acts that Peter and John were able to heal, where it says he was walking and leaping and praising the Lord. And that's kind of how you feel when you meet the Lord. And then those feelings kind of wear off, and they don't last. And problems come in. Trials and disappointments come, and sometimes your, your health struggle with health issues, or maybe you pray for something and God doesn't answer as you prayed, and and doubts can creep into your heart, and then maybe you have old friends and they cut you off and uh, harass you because of your your faith, and if you're married, maybe your spouse who's not a believer is threatened by your faith because they see change in you, and that means they need to change, and so they up the opposition, they're hostile, they're abusive. Over years, maybe your kids don't turn out quite as you'd hope they would. So the question is then, how do you go on with Christ over the long haul? How do you sustain and deepen that first love that you had for Jesus Christ? To be honest, Sadly, some don't go on. I've seen people fall away. I know people who have fallen away from the Lord. Sometimes they grow bitter because of their trials. Um, I've seen some fall prey to false teachers. There's this false teaching that says, Oh, if you just have enough faith, God will heal you. He'll give you all the wealth and all that baloney. And they buy into that falsehood. I've seen people get sucked in by the cults. More often, what I see is people just kind of settle in for a routine Christianity. You know, probably some here. You're, You're a Christian, yeah, and you go through the motions, but it's not all that exciting. 
that first love is gone. Uh, routine marriage. Some of us are in routine marriages. Thankfully, I'm not. But, you know, it's easy to just kind of, yeah, we're married. And I find that people that are in routine Christianity, they, they collect stuff to fill the void. They do things, go on trips and do all this stuff, trying to find what really Christ is meant to satisfy. Not that it's wrong to go on trips or to have things, but you know what I mean. It's wrong if it's a substitute for God as your portion, as we sang. And then I've seen some who submit uh, succumb to temptation. They give in to an affair thinking that's going to fulfill them. And it doesn't. It doesn't. Sin never fulfills. Sin always destroys. So the question we want to look at today is how do you go on with Christ? Go on with vital, growing, fresh love for Jesus Christ. And Paul in our text gives us what I would call a simple but not a simplistic answer. He says we go on with Christ in the same way we received him. Notice verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Now, in the context, Paul isn't focusing so much on the mechanics of how you receive Christ, namely by grace through faith, as much as in on the Christ whom you received. Um, as we've seen, Colossians is written against a backdrop of false teachers. And these false teachers were, they probably had not set aside Christ. They were just minimizing him. Yeah, Christ is fine as far as he goes. But what you need to be fulfilled is what we have to offer. So they were adding to. Uh, they were saying that Christ is not enough. And you had to learn their secrets, which, as we'll see later in chapter 2, were things like self-abasement and worship of the angels and visions and man-made rules and all of that stuff that exalted the flesh, but not Christ. As we'll see next time, that Paul warns that they not be taken captive through philosophy and empty deception rather than according to Christ. Christ is whom Paul is proclaiming. And so, in chapter 1, to review, we saw that Paul exalts Christ as the all-sufficient one, as the one who is supreme over all. In Christ, he said in Colossians 1.14, we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. He went on in that wonderful passage beginning at verse 15 to say, Jesus is the image of of the invisible God, he is the firstborn of all creation, which, as he immediately explains, means Jesus created all things that exist. Nothing exists apart from Christ. He's the eternal creator. He also said that Christ is the head of his body, the church. He said that God's intention in Christ is that he might have first place in everything. Uh, because he shares the very fullness of God, an idea that he will mention again in verse 10 that we'll look at next time. He says that uh, in chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, that even though we were alienated and hostile against God in Christ, we were reconciled to God through Jesus' death. So Paul is saying it was that Christ 
whom the Colossians received, um, whom they had believed in through Epaphras' preaching. And it was that Christ who dwelled in the Colossians, whom at the end of chapter uh, 1, verse 28, Paul said, we proclaim him so that every person would be mature in him. It's all in him. And if we want to go on uh, walking with Christ, if we want to avoid these errors of the false teachers, then Paul is saying you need to go on walking with that same Christ Jesus, the Lord, whom you received uh, through the preaching of the gospel. And in the same way, we live in a day, as we saw in our last study in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, where there is so much false teaching. And I believe that the, uh, what do I want to say, the inoculation, the the uh, preventative of getting into false teaching is to go on with Christ, to be enamored with Christ, and uh, not to drift into spiritual apathy. And so we need to see Christ exalted Christ all-sufficient. So, who then is this Christ, the Lord? Uh, How did we receive him? Well, Christ Jesus, the Lord, Paul says, is the one we received. And so, the order of that name here, I think, is significant. Christ Jesus, the Lord, uh, in the Greek text, the exact order of the words is unique right here in all of the New Testament. First of all, then, We received him as the Christ. And as you probably know, that word Christ um, is the Hebrew Meshiach, Messiah. And both words mean the anointed one. Messiah means the anointed one in Hebrew. Christ means the anointed one in Greek. And it means that he is the one prophesied of in the Hebrew scriptures since centuries before he was born as God's anointed king, prophet, and priest. As God's anointed king, it means that God appointed Jesus to reign as the sovereign of the universe. Um, He has put him on his throne. He sits at his right hand right now. He promises in Psalm 2 and in Psalm 110 that he will give Jesus, his son, Uh, the very ends of the earth as his possession, his inheritance. And one day, as Paul says in Philippians 2, every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Revelation chapter 20 tells us that when he comes again in power and glory, he will throw Satan and all of the Um, people who have followed Satan into the lake of fire. And so there is no power on heaven or uh, in heaven or on earth that can stand against him. He's God's anointed king. Jesus is also God's anointed prophet, which means he speaks for God more than any other prophet can speak for God. The reason is, as we saw in our study of John recently, Jesus is the eternal God, one with the Father. Uh, He came and took on human flesh in order that he might be the word of the Father to us. He uniquely reveals to us who the Father is, so much so that as he told Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Uh, He spoke with authority to us about heaven, 
about hell, about eternal life, how we should live in this life. And being God in human flesh, Jesus is omniscient. He knows all things. He is without sin. And so all that he speaks to us is wise, true, and authoritative. He is God's anointed king. He is God's anointed prophet, but he's also God's anointed priest. And as such, it means that he mediates between God and sinful man. He offered himself as the blood sacrifice on the cross that God's holiness, his righteousness demands as the penalty for our sin if if we would approach him. Now, in the Old Testament, the priests had to offer sacrifices first for their own sins, because they were sinners, and then for the sins of the people. The book of Hebrews says Jesus didn't have to do that because he was without sin. And so he offered himself, not for himself, for his own sins, but for sinners, for us. And so his ministry, as the book of Hebrews also says, is not like the Levitical priest. He is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, a unique and new kind of priest. And so he offered himself once for all as the sacrifice that provides complete forgiveness for all who trust in him. So what Paul is saying in Colossians 2.6 is, this is the Christ whom you received. This is the only Savior. And so you should not, you must not turn aside to any other so-called Christ uh, or human philosophy because Jesus Christ revealed in the Gospels is a full and complete Savior for our sin. Also, Paul says we received him, though, as Jesus, and that's his human name. Um, He had to become fully human so that he could offer himself as the atonement for human sins. When the angel announced to Joseph that Mary was expecting through the Holy Spirit in the virgin birth, uh, he told Joseph this in Matthew 1.21, You shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the uh, Greek form of, he- of the Hebrew Joshua, which means Jehovah, Yahweh, saves. And so Jesus came to be a savior. In fact, he said in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. I've often said this, but I'll repeat it, that we throw around salvation as Christians uh, without thinking what it really means. And salvation is a radical word. Good people don't need to be saved. If they're doing okay on their own, they're doing fine. They might need a little advice. They might need a little help. But they don't need to be saved. People who need to be saved are those who are helpless and hopeless. And without a Savior coming in, a rescuer, as we sang Jesus, the rescue from heaven, without that, they're doomed, they're lost. And the Bible says that as sinners, we are lost. That means we can't save ourselves. You can't pile up enough good works to eradicate the debt of sin that you owe. And so we need a Savior And God sent Jesus to be that Savior. And the idea is 
because he is holy, God justly, righteously has wrath against all sin. And in order to be God, he must be just. And he must exact the penalty for sin. And either sinners pay it, or an acceptable substitute pays it. And Jesus was sent to be that substitute to save us from our sins. And you'll find when you talk to people about the Lord, the main thing that keeps them from being receptive to the gospel is self-righteousness. You can talk to people who are obviously, obviously way beyond their eyeballs into sin, and they'll say, well, I'm a basically good person. I've seen that happen so many times. And so you have to pray as you share that the Holy Spirit will convict them of sin and righteousness and judgment and show them their need for the Savior. Now, the Bible says that God is a personal God, and yet at the same time, 1 Timothy 6.16 says, He dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. And so he is altogether other than us. 1 John 1.5 puts it, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And God is so holy that when Isaiah, who was a godly man, got a glimpse of God in heaven, he cried out, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I had somebody that read the sermon in advance email me this week and say, wait a minute, if God can't be seen, how could Isaiah see him? And I think the answer to that conundrum is this. I think Isaiah saw the pre-incarnate, exalted, glorious Lord Jesus Christ on the throne. We cannot see a spirit, and God is spirit. But we can see Christ, and in his pre-incarnate form, he had bodily form. He's the one who wrestled with Jacob. I believe he's the one who was in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, He is the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament who appeared numerous times. And so I think that's the answer. But the question we all have to face, the point I'm making is this. How can we who are sinners be so close to such a holy God? And the good news is this. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. Not to save pretty good people, to save sinners. And so uh, he himself, it says, bore our sins in his body on the cross. And if you know you're a sinner, the Bible has a wonderful promise in Romans 10, 13. It says, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Simple. That's it. If you say, oh God, help me, I am a sinner, like that publican that Jesus talked about in the temple, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He went home justified. It's a transaction that God takes, uh, that takes place through God because Jesus Christ provided for lost sinners. So he is Christ Jesus, but also Paul says we received him as the Lord. You have received Christ Jesus, the Lord. And the Lord refers to his deity. Uh, In the Old Testament, it's the covenant name of God, that he is Yahweh, he is the Lord. 
It means that he is the ruler over all that exists because, as we saw, he created all that exists. Uh, It means that when he commands us, he's the Lord. We have to obey him. And if that sounds negative to you, the Bible assures us his commands are not burdensome. His commands are for our good. And when we disobey his commands, it's always to our detriment, to our harm. Now, there's this funny teaching out there that somehow you can accept Jesus as your Savior now and put off accepting him as Lord till some later date when you might get inspired to do so. That's false. When you accept Christ, you accept him as Christ Jesus the Lord. There's no other way to, to receive him. You have to receive him for all he is. And he is the Lord. And so, granted, you grow in that process of understanding his lordship and how it affects every area of your life. But the way I put it is, you come to Christ with all that you know of him and all that you know of yourself submitted to him. And then that grows over time. As you get in his word, you see more of who he is. You see more of who you are. And you grow in that. But the Bible promises that when he comes again, it will be in power and glory and every knee will bow, some forcibly and others willingly. Now the Colossians, and I hope every person here, has received Christ Jesus the Lord. And what Paul is saying is don't trade in this Savior for a false substitute. Don't Trade him in for some philosophy. Uh, If we receive Christ Jesus the Lord, then we have to continue in him. But let's look for a moment also at the fact that we received him. What does that mean? We received him. It means to receive something as transmitted from their teachers is the idea of it. Um, Paul received the gospel directly from revelation of Jesus Christ. He says that in Galatians 1. He passed that on to others, such as Epaphras. Epaphras went to Colossae and preached the gospel. The Colossians received it from Epaphras. And so to receive Christ Jesus means the gospel is not the, the result of a bunch of philosophers getting together in a seminary and coming up with something, it comes from Jesus Christ by direct revelation to the apostles. We have the message in the New Testament, and so we receive their testimony as true. Now, when we receive the gospel, we don't just receive a body of doctrines, although there are certain um, doctrines we must submit to, but we receive Christ Jesus the Lord. In other words, we receive him, a person, and we, re- we welcome him into our lives as the living Savior, as our rightful Lord. Now, as I said, the Christian life is a process of growing deeper as you grow to know more of who Jesus is and more to know how can I please him. All of that increases over time, but as imperfect as our initial understanding may be, we have to receive Jesus Christ as our Lord. And so saving faith is more than just intellectual assent. Yeah, I agree with all that. I grew up in the church. I know all that stuff. No, there's that personal element of saying, Lord Jesus, 
I want you to be my Savior. I want you to be my Lord. And that means that he now owns you. He bought you with his blood. You belong to him. So you have to go on with that Christ. Now, how do you do it? Well, that's our second point here, is that we go on walking with him as Christ Jesus the Lord. Verse 6, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And that's a present tense verb, uh, indicating an ongoing process. Walking is a frequent metaphor for the Christian life. And as I've thought about it, I thought, isn't that interesting? He didn't, sometimes he uses run, run the race, that kind of thing. Um, But you think about it, walking isn't as impressive as running. It's not as impressive as flying, uh, jumping. It's just kind of a ho-hum activity. But the point is, if you walk in a certain direction, step by step, day by day, you'll eventually get to your goal. And that's the picture of the Christian life that's here. And so we're to walk in him. That means in all that he is to us, in all of those in Christ phrases that are throughout the New Testament, we walk in him. Now to explain that and elaborate on it, Paul uses four participles in verse 7 to show us what that walk in Christ looks like. First of all, having been firmly rooted. And secondly, now being built up in him. And thirdly, established in your faith, just as you were instructed. And then fourthly, overflowing with gratitude. The first participle, having been firmly rooted, is a perfect tense in the Greek New Testament, which means it looks at past action that has continuing results. The other three are present participles, looking at the ongoing process. Um, being, uh, <clears throat> you're being built up, you're being established, you're being uh, overflowing with gratitude. The first three participles are what is called the passive voice, which indicates God is doing these things in you. And then the fourth one, the overflowing with gratitude, is the active voice, which either means We have a a responsibility to do that, or also it may be the result of the first three. Notice how Paul mixes up a lot of metaphors. You're walking on a path is one picture. You're being rooted like a tree. You're being built up like a building. Uh, You're overflowing like a flooding river. I don't think there's any logical connection. I think Paul's just coming at it with different word pictures to show us what it means to walk with Christ Jesus the Lord in the same way we received him. Briefly, let me go over each of the four. First of all, to walk with Christ Jesus the Lord means being rooted in him. And the picture there is a tree that's planted with roots going down deep into the soil so that it gets the nutrients it needs and it's healthy. Uh, When a storm comes, it doesn't blow over. When a drought comes, it doesn't dry up. It's got roots. It's got roots. And uh, that's what keeps it during those hard times. And when we genuinely trust in Christ, God plants us in Christ. We're rooted in him. And yet, I believe there's still 
a responsibility that we have to send down roots. And that looks at the unseen part of your Christian life. It's not seen to others. You know, you can go to church and act like a Christian. Everybody thinks, oh my, it's wonderful. Look at that person. But they don't see what's going on in your heart. That's between you and God. They don't see whether you spend time alone with the Lord. And uh, that's the hidden part. That's the roots. And if you don't do that, a storm's going to come up and whoop, you're going to go over like some of the trees in the forest that don't have the roots. And so you've got to spend that time alone. And you've got to deal with your thoughts before the Lord because that's the roots that you send down with him. The second metaphor Paul uses is to walk with Christ Jesus. The Lord, he says, means being built up in him. And this looks at a building that is being constructed. Uh, The present idea looks at steady progress. If you've ever watched a building go up, whether it's a building being built near you or one you pass every day, or maybe it's a house going up for you, Uh, Sometimes you see a lot of progress outwardly. They put up the frame, they put on the roof. And then a lot of times you look at it and you go, what did they do there this week? It looks the same as the last week from the outside, but they were busy inside, maybe finishing cabinets or wiring or doing the plumbing or all those things that are essential for the finished building to function properly. Well, when you walk with the Lord, sometimes there's obvious changes outwardly where others notice. More often, it's the hidden stuff that goes on. Not as dramatic, but just as necessary. Where maybe you learn to trust God and obey Him in difficult daily events going on. Uh, Sometimes, maybe it's before you would have grumbled. Now in your heart, you give thanks. Uh, Before, you would have gotten angry with that person who was kind of mean to you. Now, you treat them with kindness because the Lord's love is at work in your heart. That kind of thing. Before, maybe you would have lusted. Now you judge that thought and turn to the Lord. Those kind of changes internally. So you're gradually being built up in Him. The third picture Paul paints is to walk with Christ Jesus the Lord. He says means being established in the faith. Now, the New American Standard translates in your faith, and that's legit. It's a Greek definite article, and sometimes that means your. Um, But in light of the context, he goes on and says, just as you were instructed... And in light of the broader context of Paul writing against false teachers, I think it's better to translate it um, uh, to be established in the faith, that is, Christian truth. And it's solid doctrine that gives you a foundation so that you aren't going to be blown around by every wind of doctrine that comes um, That word established is sometimes used in Greek as a legal term, and it means to confirm or to guarantee or to make something irrevocable. And so I think the idea Paul is trying to get across may be that as 
we gain a knowledge of God's word and we see the many faithful promises God makes to us and we realize that God is true and he never can lie, our assurance grows as we put those promises into our daily walk with Christ. And sound doctrine has a way of preventing you from being swept away again when false doctrine uh, comes in and blows others off course. So the application of that point is, is this. If you're not growing to know sound doctrine, you need to. Get a catechism. You know, John Piper has a good Baptist catechism on his website. Or get a basic book on theology. I like Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. It's readable and it's easy to understand. I don't agree with everything, but he's accessible. Um, Maybe tackle a book on some theological subject and read it. And and that way when, you know, the cultists come knocking, you're not going to be taken away and, and confused by what they say. The final picture to walk with Christ Jesus the Lord, Paul says, means overflowing with gratitude. And the picture here we saw on the news about a month ago when the Mississippi was flooding, and it's overflowing its banks. The the levees couldn't contain it. It was just all over the place, sadly, in many people's homes up to their ceiling. But the point here is, as we revel in all that God has done for us in Christ, we just well up with gratitude. Some of you may relate to me. I am prone to grumble. You prone to grumble? You know, it's not usually the big things. Then I realize God's dealing with me. It's the little irritations during the week. Something goes wrong. Why did that have to happen? You know, the car breaks or... Or something happens. Grumble, grumble, grumble. And I think I'm making progress. I I really do. But boy, that's a battle. You know, in the Old Testament, that was a sin that Israel committed. Here God had miraculously delivered them from bondage in Egypt. He miraculously provided them with manna in the wilderness and water out of the rock. <clears throat> the cloud to cover them in the hot sun, the fire to warm them and light them at night. And what did they do? Grumble, grumble, grumble. You know, we got to deal with it. And all through, <clears throat> all through Colossians, Paul repeatedly emphasizes thankfulness. Back in chapter 1, in verse 12, he said, We should be giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And uh, here's the application in the context of a book that's dealing with false teaching. If you're a grumbler, you're going to be more prone to false teaching and to their uh, false promises. If I could compare it to my marriage. If I grumbled about Marla all the time, oh, why doesn't she do this? Why doesn't she do that? And guess what? The enemy's going to bring some misperfect along that's going to seduce me. But thankfully, I just think Marla's the best wife I could have in the whole world. And I am not susceptible to some gal that comes along. It's just, no, thank you. I got the best. Why do I need somebody else? 
And you see, if you see Christ as the best, you see Christ as your all in all, you see all the blessings you have in Christ, and somebody comes knocking on the door with false teaching, what are you going to do? Thanks. I got Jesus. Why do I need that? You see the application? And so it's vital that we learn to give thanks, to give thanks even in our trials. Well, this March, Marla and I are going to celebrate 42 years of marriage, and I'm here to tell you what began so wonderfully all those years ago and so suddenly uh, is still even better now, and uh, I am just so thankful for her. And you say, well, how did you sustain it? Well, there's a lot of work, of course, but the bottom line is we've gone on in the same way we started. I'm still hopelessly infatuated with her, and she puts up with me. And so we, we go on that way. But, you know, the application is this. Are you today going on with Jesus with the same love you had when you started? I, I fear there's some that have settled into a routine marriage with the Savior. And, yeah, you're a Christian, Ho-hum, it's not all that exciting. And I pray that God would use this message to kind of encourage you to take time this week and just get alone with the Lord and sit at his feet and adore him and worship him and get a bigger vision of him in his beauty and his grace And ask the Lord, Lord, make this year a year of unprecedented growth in my walk with you. That that first love would come back and and be refreshed. And that it would be real and that it would grow. That's, I believe, what Paul is saying. And if there's anybody here and you've never received Christ Jesus the Lord, then may I ask, why not today? This is the day of salvation. And God invites you to come as a sinner to the cross and be flooded with his mercy and his grace. It's a free gift. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for your word that guides us, that strengthens us, that promises so many good things to us. My heart is burdened that all of us, myself included, would not settle into a routine Christianity where, yeah, we're Christians, but we're not all that thrilled about it. We're not reveling in grace and in the love of Christ. I pray, Lord, you would revive our hearts that we would be captivated afresh with the beauty and the love and the grace of Christ, who though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor so that we might be rich in him. Help us with the daily discipline to be with you, to sink down roots. Father, if any are here who don't know the wonderful love of Jesus, I pray that you would show them their desperate need, that they have sinned, that they are guilty, that they are under your judgment if they don't repent. 
and that they would come as guilty sinners to the cross to receive mercy. Thank you that it is free, that it is abundant to cover the sins of the chief of sinners. And I pray that it would be real for every one of us here in Jesus' name.